Hello and welcome to Now Fear This with Becky and Marie, the podcast where we talk about all the things that scare the shit out of us and a few things that don't, like recording for 20 minutes without Marie hitting record. And we just had some brilliant material that would have changed y'all's lives that Marie didn't capture when she should have hit record on the new, not taking responsibility for not <laughs> reminding her. But um, usually the damn thing announces when you're being recorded on a Zoom and it's like, you better jump back when that lady's voice comes on. And I can't believe both of us didn't notice. So can you make sure, Marie, that we're recording two separate audios as well? Yeah, I did that before we... Um, okay. You know what? So... I'll do it. I'm going to do it a second time though. Because holy shit. That's a first, <laughs> right? already like... That's a fucking we first. We did almost 20 minutes. We were 20 minutes into this motherfucker. If I hadn't have noticed... We could have finished the whole thing. <laughs> How pissed would you be if we did the whole episode? <laughs> oh my god, Marie! Would okay, we break so here's up? What I'm gonna if we do. had recorded a whole episode, would I would I break up with you? Yeah. Here's the funny thing, because I'm recording it on my computer because it's the audio is better when I need to because the Wi-Fi between mine and yours and the recording and the you putting it onto my you know onto Dropbox, my audio is usually like degraded. So I have to record it on my computer as well so that I can go back and dub. So all we would have had was me <laughs> talking and it sounds like I'm talking to like myself and laughing at myself. That would have been, I would have just released that episode just for fucking shits and giggles. But um Okay, all what right. are you fearing today, Marie? <laughs> um wow. What am I fearing? I'm fearing I don't know. <laughs> I've lost my article. Hold on. Oh Lord. Oh Lord, this is already a shit show and a half. Oh, so you know what I'm gonna do while you're looking for that? I'm gonna tell you I just decided today that I'm gonna compile some bloopers and outtakes of us okay. where we're acting a fool and just making each other laugh for absolutely no reason and make an episode of those because there are times when we record last week. By the way, the episode I titled it "Somebody Get the Bras of Life," um, and it's it's about our um, somebody men, get the bras of life, and it's about men who disappear into the forest never to be seen again. Yeah, and I was listening to it, and that motherfucker was almost two hours, and we recorded it, and I had to cut so much material down to one hour. I'm like, I want to save some of this material and use it for an episode just of us. I don't know. I think we're pretty fucking funny when we make each other laugh. And I think even yeah. if we're not funny, us laughing sounds so funny to me because we sound like such dipshits that it probably will be really entertaining for people. <laughs> okay, um, what are you fearing truly? Got to tell me right now. Yeah, so my trainer keyed me into something new that we all need to fear. What do you think is the number one drink of psychopaths? Well, I'm... Don't think you would bring this up if it weren't Chardonnay or margaritas, right? Because that's all I drink. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, no? Oh, I would okay. definitely keep it a secret if it was wine. <laughs> For sure. Uh, no, gin and tonic, believe it or not. So my trainer was telling me, she was talking to a friend of hers about guys that, a guy that she was dating or, or something like that. And the therapist was like, or the psychologist was like, what does he drink? Because most psychopaths drink gin and tonic and i'm like how did i not know this so i did I some research and there's tons of articles about this right the one that i pulled up was from the new york post december 31st of 2017 how did we not hear about this this came out in 2017 wow research conducted by psychologists from innsbruck university in austria consisted of two experiments carried out on 953 people men and women were presented with a list of foods and beverages like bitter sour salty and sweet items they were asked to rate each item and then they were given a personality questionnaire gauging their levels of emotional stability machiavellianism being so focused on individual interests that they will manipulate deceive and exploit others to achieve their goals if you didn't know what that was aggression and tendency towards everyday sadism for instance one of the questions was did they enjoy tormenting people okay hold on <laughs> everyday sadism i think that's going to be the name of my new punk rock band everyday sadism <laughs> for sure that, that phrase is just so 
so brilliant and like explicit in just it a is. simple way. Why don't we you just know? change our podcast to that? Everyday statism. <laughs> that might actually be the name of this episode. That's pretty quick to get to that. Uh, <laughs> or okay. it's not everyday sadism. It's sadism, you know, every other week. But well, here's what's funny is I am going to talk about that phrase every day. Every day versus every day. Today, I'm going to do that. I've got a whole grammar lesson for you for y'all to look forward to. <laughs> well, anyway, although a concrete reason wasn't offered, this, the study leader, Dr. Christian, I cannot pronounce his name, Sagio Glue, said that eating bitter foods could possibly be compared to a roller coaster ride where people enjoy things that include fear. <laughs> like dark chocolate and coffee is, is connected to fear? Like some, it hits some part of your brain that is connected to fear? that's what he said and you know what all right actually i'm just gonna say you know what's interesting about that i was actually having a conversation recently about this bizarrely it's about people's taste in food and how that taste evolves and some people get stuck in a period of time in their life and their taste buds don't ever evolve and i wonder why that is you know like some people will never tolerate sushi. Is it because they don't like sushi or is it because they're not very adventurous with food? And I do remember, and this is to relate, when I was a kid, my grandma would make a pot of beans and she made the hottest jalapenos on the planet, vinegar-based ones that she would can. And my aunts and uncles would sit around and they would eat the beans and then they'd take a bite of jalapeno, like just straight up. Mm. And as a kid sitting there, I felt like I needed to build up to that level. But I was very fearful about it. And it caused me anxiety. But now I do that all the time. And I kind of treat food that way in a sense. Like There is something that my mother-in-law said to me that explained a lot about my diet. Because I have the diet of a 12-year-old boy. Even though I'm, I've never been a 12-year-old boy and I'm not going to be. <laughs> um, my mother-in-law said that one of the things she learned from her mom, from her mom and her mom's mom is you wait as long as possible to ever feed a child anything sweet, a baby, anything sweet, because you don't want them to develop a taste for anything that is sweet, including really sweet fruits and stuff. Um, and it makes sense to me, you know, that you want to delay that and make their taste buds develop in other ways. And and I ate Cheetos from the time I, I didn't even have teeth when my mom was feeding me puffy Cheetos. And I never ate anything healthy when I was growing up, really. And I never really developed a taste for it. So I think there's something to that. I do. And I have to make myself eat healthy foods occasionally. Like I have to force myself to do it. Yeah. My family was all about a huge variety of vegetables. My favorite food when I was a kid was liver and onions. Oh yeah. And then it was also the thing, like if they served something that didn't look good to me, I could not get up from the table until I ate it. That was another thing. I would and... sit there all night. I'm, I was one of those kids. I would sit there all night. Really? You'd come out the next morning, I'd be sitting at the table. Oh, wow. Like, before I would, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm a psychopath, but I do like bitter, sour. I distrust your liver and onions thing. That makes me question <laughs> your moral compass right, and whether right. or not you're involved in everyday sadism. But um, <laughs> Jake Johansson, who's a comic, is hilarious. He was talking about one time when he was a kid and his dad, he always hated tomatoes. And they were sitting at the dinner table and his dad was telling me, better eat your tomatoes or you're not getting up from here. And this is the way Jake Johansson tells it. But of course, he's funny when he tells it. He says, I told my dad, I'll throw up. And my dad was like, eat the tomatoes. I'll throw up. Eat the tomatoes. I'll throw up. Eat the tomatoes. When his dad turns into the clenched teeth Satan thing, smart money's on, eat the tomatoes. <laughs> he said, I ate the tomatoes and then I threw up. But I actually was happy because I won that argument. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. That would have been me. How funny. So, okay, um, we talked a little bit before we started recording. Yes. We want to do a little bit of a recommendation for a TV show that I recommended to Marie. You want to bring that up again real quick and then we can dive Oh, into yeah. I just wanted to bring up a TV show that you recommended I watch called Blackbird. That's on Always Apple TV. It's Apple, Apple TV. TV. Okay. Yeah. It's a show about a serial killer and um, a guy gets embedded with him. Don't from, give anything else away, but it has yeah. to do with. And trying killer. to get him to confess or, or tell. And the guy who um, is the lead in it is not the serial killer. The serial killer is 
in a lot of scenes, but it's he's in a lot of scenes with Greg Kinnear, which I thought was really fun. Um, Greg Kinnear is great in it. All of the lead actors are so good. Um, Ta- Ta- what do you, Taryn Egger- Egerton? Taryn Egerton, yeah. So last week when we were recording our show, Somebody Get the Bras of Life, I mentioned, I, w- I was going to do a fear, but then you did your own funny fear. And my funny fear was going to be, I fear that British actors are so much better than American actors, if only because they do the American accent so phenomenally well. I did not even know that some of these actors were British. Oh, wow. And I made a list. Like, I mean, seriously, I didn't know that Daniel Kaluga was was British. I had no idea. Taryn Egerton, I had no idea. And we both watched um, the Fundamentalist Mormon show with the guy who plays Spider-Man, uh, Andrew Garfield, British. Yeah. I had no idea. Anyway, um, so the leads are so good. The serial killer in Blackbird is so good that I don't know how he did his voice. I don't know if he destroyed his vocal cords doing that voice, but he's a, he's amazing. I also don't feel like that they sensationalized the crimes. In fact, I think they made a big focus on the victims, which I thought was nice. Mm-hmm. And the investigation. It was very investigation yeah. focused rather than being exploitative at all. Yeah. So I'm going to invite Marie to. Um, yeah, so what, offer... what are you fearing today? Oh, no, I was going to I was going to oh. invite you to uh, offer me a gin and tonic in the serial killer voice before we move on. Oh, Becky, do you want do you want a gin and tonic? <laughs> yes, you... that's it. Oh, right Becky. What are you fearing today? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fearing neighbors. Yeah. And this was where we were when Marie realized we weren't recording. So now we're back to where we should have been all along. But I'm fearing neighbors. And I've got a couple of stories of my own that I'll touch on briefly of neighbors. I'll start with one of mine and then I'll tell a story that did not end as peacefully as one of mine did. But I had a neighbor problem for an entire length of time that I lived in a neighborhood in Dallas. But when I moved in, before we moved in, it was being built. And so we came onto it. It was being built as a spec house. And so when we found it, it was almost done, but we chose most of the finish out. So it's kind of best of both worlds. But the builder told us one day when we went by to check on the progress that the neighbor to our west was upset about the fence. She did not like the fence being built out to the edge of our property because the person who lived there before didn't have their fence built out. You know, a lot of houses will build a dog run. Even if you don't have a dog, it's an important part of like building the house for property values or something. And so he said she would come over and just start bitching about it, just bitching about it, bitching about it because her driveway butted up against our property line. And she wanted to be able to get out of her car as close as possible to her side door and unload her groceries. And building six extra feet of fence meant she wasn't able to do that. And I said, well, it's our property. Put the fence up. Like, so did Curtis. We're like, I don't know. And the builder, looking back, the builder was kind of making this face like, I don't know if you want to do that. Like, he already knew we would pay a price for this. And boy, did we. Y'all, we lived in that house for seven years, I think. And the war with us over that fence started before we ever even moved in. And it went on and on and on in such weird passive aggressive ways that not just the neighbor, but the across the street neighbor declared war on us as well. And so she would passive aggressively do weird shit. And one of the things that she would do is she would park her car in front of our house. And I mean, directly for days and days and days and days at a time, directly in front of our house, like where our sidewalk is. But you can call the police to remove a car if it's there for days and days and days. I even called our neighborhood police guy who worked for us, like our neighborhood association part-time. And and he said, okay, if it's there longer than 24 hours, we can get a ticket. And I think he did it. I think he even talked to her. Didn't matter to her. She still would come back. And then she would do things like move just a few feet. And then she'd move it back a few feet. And then she'd move it a few feet. And then she'd move it back a few feet. And it got to be such a annoyance. One day, Curtis had had enough. And he went over and knocked on her door. And he backs himself up onto the sidewalk, like a good 20 feet from her and just says, hey, would you mind not parking in front of our house? And she starts screaming at him about the fence. And he's like, all right, not, there's no nothing rational. I mean, it started like the day we moved in, the movers were there and it was downpour. And she was parked in front of our house. And the movers couldn't even get to our house to, to put the moving van in front of our house because she was parked in front of our house. And one day I came home from work right when she was doing it. And so... I told myself, I, I said, if she's parking in front of my house right now, or if her car is in front of my house, I'm going to say something to her. I can't take it. 
So instead of going into my alleyway to park into my garage, I turned down our street. And sure as shit, there she was pulling in from the other direction in front of our house. And so I pull up and I, you know how you're, you kind of do a three-point turn and you're blocking the middle of the street before you put it in reverse to do your three-point turn. So I parked parallel. I rolled down the window and I just, I said, can I park there? And she gets out of her car, slams the door, comes over to my window and starts screaming at me. I can park anywhere I want. And I said, well, well, I said, yeah, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Why don't you park behind your own house? And then she said the weirdest thing, Marie. She goes, park behind my house. And I go, yeah, in your driveway. She goes, that's not a driveway. That's just the spot between the alley and the garage. And I go, you mean a driveway? <laughs> and then she finally worked herself up into such a lather that she walks across the street, opens the door to her house, turns around, and screams at me at the top of her lungs. Just so you know, everybody in this neighborhood hates your husband. And then goes back in her house and slams the door. And nobody's ever met my husband at this point. But she had poisoned everyone up and down the street about us. I literally, one day we had a neighbor come over and try to make peace. And she said to Curtis, now, I just want to try and broker peace between you. And I know that you have your sex parties. And, and Curtis goes, what? And she goes, sex oh, I know. Yeah, she literally said, oh, I know we have sex parties. And Curtis is like, first of all, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm telling you, it was the weirdest fucking thing. He comes back in the house and he goes, our neighbor three doors down just accused us of having sex parties. And um, I, and I, anyway, I'm telling you, it's going to go on and on and on and on and on. We ended up moving. Thank God. Every once in a while, we'll drive by that house. And she still lives there across the street, neighbor. And as far as I can tell, she's never parked her car across the street in front of our house ever again since we left. Um, but she did it for seven years. And so during this time, all of our friends were trying to brainstorm on ways to get her to go away. Like turn on your sprinkler aimed at her car, you know, like all kind like, and I was like, I'm not going to passive aggressively engage this woman. I just want her to leave me alone. So things could have turned out really, really badly. If I think Curtis and I had escalated things or engaged more than we did, I think it could have turned out really like dangerous. And there's a TV show called Fear Thy Neighbor. Every time we watch this show, we go, this could have been us. Something could have gone this horribly wrong with us. This wasn't even the woman that had the issue with the fence. Nope. It was her friend. No. Oh, she never let up either. Curtis couldn't go out to go get the mail without the woman next door also coming over and screaming at him. Move the fence. Curtis is like, I'll sell you my land, but I'm not giving you six feet of land. It, it was just a relentless campaign for seven years. It was awful. It was awful. So it could have turned out like Fear Thy Neighbor. It did not, because as far as I know, everyone involved is still alive. But I'm going to tell you a story that was also featured on Fear Thy Neighbor. You watched that episode, I right? did, yeah. Okay. And so I'm going to list my sources because there's a bunch. This is a very well-known, widely known story from the mid-90s. Briefly, sources of True Crime Discussions blog, The AP, a newspaper called The Victoria Advocate, Fear Thy Neighbor, Season 2, Episode 2, Lake of Madness. And there's a militaryjusticeforall.com website. And I'm going to tell you in just chronological, because I know you don't like it when we jump around. There's no reason to jump around. We're going to go in order. And this has to do with a family called the Schlegel family. And it's spelled S-C-H-L-O-E-G-L. -E and I had to look up how to pronounce that. And it's Schlegel. And they lived in the mid-90s in a town about 100 miles northwest of Minneapolis called Sauk Center. Population 3,600. So it's a small town around this lake. And we're talking about the Schlegel family, Warren, Marcella, who went by Marcy, Jody, their 12-year-old, Eric, their 11-year-old, and Nicole, their 16-year-old, lived in this home. And when they first moved in, it was perfect. They got away from their other world. They were tired. I think they might have been actually dairy farmers, and they wanted to get away from all that work and kind of mm -hmm. ease into a more peaceful lake life. And when they first moved in, their neighbors had three kids the same age as their kids. And it was just perfect. And everybody got along beautifully until their neighbors moved. And in comes a man named Paul Crawford, who was in his 70s. And he was a military veteran. He had wanted to escape the city life. And he was single. He lived by himself. He had an ex-wife. Yes, he had, he had a grown son. I would say it more yes. like a grown son who was married and an ex-wife. I think he had some health issues, too. Yeah, he was trying to recover from some health issues there, yeah. His family yeah. was really so, concerned about him being out there on his own. Like, even 
walking down the grade to the lake and things like that they thought might be difficult for him yeah he um also was very rules bound and a lot of these fear thy neighbor shows do feature men who have been in the military who are very rules bound and a lot of property line arguments get escalated because people are so rules bound that's mine this is yours and never the twain shall meet and that is one of these stories now when he moved in there's a dock that is on his property and he didn't know that it was his property at first because there's a five foot kind of not really tell what's what well this dock belonged to the schlegel family and they used it continually and repeatedly and they never had any problems in the past but once paul learned by digging up old records that it was on his property he adamantly wanted it gone he wanted it off of his property and moved back onto their property i think that the schlegel family knew that the dock area was not theirs the way that it was presented was everyone kind of shared it because there was only one space on the lake where you could safely put a dock right it was not something that i have a place in front of my house you have one in front of yours and the neighbor right, has one in right. front of theirs and it was yeah it was more of a community kind of a thing but as time passed and people moved away the neighbors that lived there where the dock was did not care if other people used it and there was Paul kind did. of an, an arrangement and then over time, the Schlegels just treated it like it was their own. I think that's kind of an accurate representation of it. One thing that I want to point out, and I couldn't find any information about it, is I do think this sort of thing happens a lot where people don't really understand the boundaries of their own property. And I will tell you a story about that as well. I'll be very brief, but it's almost identical to this story. There's just a couple of roles that are flipped. My parents-in-law many years ago bought a lake house. And on their property, and they had it surveyed and everything, on their property was this dilapidated old boathouse. And it was awful. It was dangerous. It was awful. And it completely blocked their view of the lake. Well, their neighbors on one side of them believed that they should have access to that boathouse and that my in-laws were not allowed to tear it down, even though it was on their property. Then my mother-in-law went around to the other neighbors and they all said, well, it's on your property. We tear it down. And they tried everything with these neighbors, these other two people, tried everything. You know, we will pay for it to be rebuilt on your property. And they said, no, we don't want to ruin our view. I mean, it was just awful. And my in-laws tore it down. And they ended up in court over it at least twice, where the neighbors were saying that it was ours. You didn't have the right to tear it down. I don't care if it was on your property. It did not matter to them. And eventually, in order to get them to leave them alone, my in-laws sued them and won a judgment of $80,000 that they never paid. But I'll tell you, the judge in that case was rooting against my in-laws. And part of, I think, the issue here is when you deal with small towns, you deal with a judge who knows everybody. You deal with weird little situations where the outside law does not apply. And every time the police would be called and this and that, it's always, oh, it's a civil matter. Take it to, take it to civil court. And who has the money to do that? And you know what I mean? So the property line stuff, yeah, it matters, but it can't always if your neighbors are convinced of something, it doesn't matter to them. They're going to keep doing what they're doing. And apparently right. this family gave zero flying fucks. Right. Um, and well, like and let me just zero. Let me, just, <laughs> let me point out another thing. Whatever state you live in has different laws. So, you know, when you purchase a property or a house, you should really investigate what those laws are. In the state of Oklahoma, for instance, when I had to take over my grandma's property while she was in the nursing home, one of the things that the attorney advised me about was be sure and make sure the fence integrity is good because if somebody moves your fence line and you don't see it and they start using your property if they do that for like i think it's something like seven years then that becomes their property that's very much like the squatters thing and all of those laws are so antiquated the very idea of that is nonsense to me but all this stuff related to when you claim land and the Oklahoma land rush, you know, the, the things are just so antiquated. It just doesn't fit anymore. But nobody changes those laws, you know. Right. So, so there Paul, is. Going back to Paul, he did the survey. He found out that the dock fell into his land. And what happened next? So, you know, when you get one of those surveys done on land and they put the little flags in, 
you ever see those flags, don't you go near those flags. It is a crime to move those flags or to knock them over. And that comes in to play big time later. So this war between these two neighbors escalates. And Warren Schlegel, by many accounts, and I did read a lot of accounts and listened to some podcasts that reference this, that Warren gave zero flying fucks. He really didn't care. He was a hunter and he would take his gun and walk around everybody else's property when he was hunting. I mean, all of the neighbors experienced this from Warren. So much so that the neighbors took up a petition and all these people signed it saying, we want you to leave our property alone when you're carrying a gun. You know, my kids are out playing, whatever. And he kept doing it. He didn't fucking care. He didn't fucking care. And one of the things that Paul accused Warren of was encouraging Warren's kids to fuck with Paul's property. Right. Play in his yard. and Yeah, they play in his yard. They'd run up to the dock. And he said that they were throwing things into his yard. And there's all, like, they would let the dog play in the yard. And he, again, was all about straight lines. This is mine. That's yours. Stop it. And they wouldn't stop it. And all the parties that were really involved are not around anymore. I'll tell you exactly what happened and why that is. But we don't know for sure that it was even Warren encouraging his own kids to do it. Paul thought so, but every time that he would call the police or Warren would call the police, there was never any actual criminal activity to prove had been done. And Warren Schlegel and his family said, well, it's not our kids. Paul pisses off other kids in the neighborhood too. So you don't know that they're not fucking with him too, you know, because when the grumpy old guy, you know, lives in that house, kids are assholes and they might be fucking with him too. I don't know. I'm just saying we don't have necessarily, in today's world, we'd have video proof of all of it. Right. But in 95 and 96, we just don't. We just don't. Well, and this is the conflict that normally occurs. It's these two personality types. It's the rigid, you know, everything has to be according to a certain way. And the person that's like, hey, we're all friends. We're all neighbors. Let's just share everything, whether people want to or not. And I think that everything Warren did started to get on his nerves. Like they mentioned that Warren would have parties. You know, Warren does have a right to have a party at his house. We had people living below us at one point, and we made the mistake of saying when we first moved in, hey, you know, if we're ever too noisy or anything bothers you, let us know. And then... So they did? Oh, <laughs> constantly, right? Like, we were we were watching, like, a Judd Apatow romantic comedy, and the guy said our TV was so loud he couldn't hear his own TV. I'm like, not possible. Just tell you were watching Independence Day Part Four or whatever. No, not possible. You know, like with explosions and yeah. But like, if you're gonna start complaining about how I walk, my cat's walking. Like we have to walk. You bought a second story condo. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But then mm-hmm. we had some other neighbors that had a conflict that was like super extreme. Like the during COVID, the people above them like brought in all this gym equipment and we're like deadlifting and doing band practice and smoking on the porch all day so there's levels right and it's a lot of it's about just trying to find that balance of being respectful but also understanding on the other side that people do have a right to live their life yes but Um, that none of that was happening here and paul well it's like go ahead well i guess i see both sides to a certain extent you have this right. common use thing, right? That people are using yeah. for their boats. And it's a bit of an adjustment to say now you don't have access to it. And actually, because the Schlegel family had access to it for so long, they may have some rights to it. It's possible in court. Right. right. And Paul just uncovered this thing. He didn't even know when he purchased it that it was a part of the property. And actually, the people who sold it clearly didn't either, or they would have told him. So this is a very, I don't, I'm curious how this would have turned out in court, because I don't think it's well, clear cut. And this should have been addressed in court. Like, an official of some kind should have determined this, whether or not somebody had to sue somebody or the city or the county or whatever. Something should have happened here, obviously, because of what's about to happen. We're not telling you all this story because everybody gets along and starts celebrating Christmas together and happily ever after. That's not how the story is going to end. And it's one of the most awful stories. It's a bad story, y'all. Don't settle in and think this is going to be like, oh, get your popcorn. No, this is a bad, bad ending. It's one of the worst things ever. But when you think about how you view somebody else's behavior in, in the field of interpersonal communication, there's a little bit of a truism, which is 
that if you don't like somebody, the way they chew their food will annoy you. But if you like somebody, they can dump their salad in your lap and you'll think it's fine. So you'll view every behavior through your lens of whether or not you like them. So if you like your neighbors, you don't care if they have a fucking party. You don't care if their kids play in your yard. You'll pet their dog. But if you don't like them and they play in your yard and they are on your dock every day, your temperature rises. And Paul's temperature was rising. Warren's temperature was rising and things got ugly. And the number of police, you know, they got called and they'd come out and then they'd say, this is not a police matter. This is a civil matter, which is very frustrating. I understand that, but it just is, you know. So we go through the winter time. Things get a little better because it's winter in Minnesota. You got to move the dock out of the water. So there's no dock. The kids aren't running across Paul's, you know, it's snow. Everybody's inside. We kind of think the temperature drops. But then once springtime comes around and then warms up and the dock goes back in, he's what Paul had started to do. And I don't remember on the show you tell me. He got his own boat and he put it next to the dock so they couldn't put their boat there. So they couldn't put their dock back in on his property. The winter weather would have prevented him from building a dock there. But he maybe got a boat and put it where they couldn't do it. But he was preventing them from from experiencing their lake life that they wanted. And so if you put that through the filter of how do I interpret other people's behavior and my experience of that person, imagine being Warren who's got your children, who've lived there however many years at this lake, and that dock is the only way to get into the water, and you are preventing our family from living our happy lives, and now the temperature is rising with Warren, and everybody's starting to hate each other even more and more and more. So this happened in June of 96, June 21st of 96, where the TV show, I believe, said that the oldest daughter, Nicole, was at a softball game with her friends. Yes, right? the interesting thing about it was they go into this whole thing about how she was like the apple of Warren's eye. Like, he wouldn't say no to anything to her. They just had a bond, like they would go hunting together. That day, she had her wisdom teeth taken out, and she was on, like, heavy narcotics. And she asked her mother if she could go to the baseball game, and her mother said no because she was on narcotics. And her dad said, it'll be okay. And he drove her into town and dropped her off. Okay. So Nicole's family is at home. So remember, we have Warren, who's 41, Marcy's 39, little Jody's 12, and Eric is 11. And Nicole is away, which ended up for the best. So while she's gone, after Warren dropped her with friends, baseball game, whatever, Warren goes back home and things start to go really bad. Someone calls the police and Warren is out in the front yard with Paul arguing. The police show up. The police officer involved, I believe he's a sheriff's deputy, believed that he had de-escalated things. And he believed that when he got back in his patrol car and drove away, that he had gotten them to a point where they understood, stop doing this, don't call the police anymore, leave each other alone, go to the civil courts. He believed he had de-escalated. Unfortunately, instead of that, we ended up with Paul, the 72-year-old, Between 11 and 15 minutes after the police left, Paul arms himself, walks back across the property, shoots Warren in the back of the head. Yeah. Little Jody, he shot outside on the porch in the stomach. Three times. Three times. Yeah. He goes inside. Marcy is there. He shoots Marcy. Marcy's dead. Warren's dead. He runs out of ammunition. The most heartbreaking part is what happens with the little boy. Eric is the 11-year-old, and he calls 911, but he is young. I don't know, but he couldn't tell them his address, and they didn't have a way of tracing him back then in 1996 in this little town. And so the 911 operator is saying to him, find a piece of mail and tell me your address. Meantime, other neighbors have called 911 as well. So the sheriff's deputy gets that call on his radio. Yes, turn around. Turns back around. Like it went from, I thought things were okay, to gunshots. And one of the neighbors witnessed Warren going down, witnessed the actual murder. Yeah. And meantime, Paul has gone back to his home, gotten a different gun, comes back into that house and kills little Eric. Now, there are some reports where people are very critical of this 911 operator saying, why didn't she tell him to hide? Or he, I don't know if it was a man or a woman. I have not heard the call. I don't know. Why didn't they tell him to hide? And I don't want to add to that criticism. In fact, I will say to you, I don't think there's a way that 
that 911 operator would have known that that Paul was coming back. As if she didn't know necessarily based on, I don't know what Eric was saying to her, that she didn't know this was an active shooter situation. And to her, perhaps the 911 operator was more important to find out where he lived to get help on the way. Because if you tell him to hide, he can't tell you where he is. He's going to be hiding for an hour and a half, five hours. You don't know. You know what I'm saying? I do. I also think it's another thing that's important to mention about Paul's state of mind. When he reloads before he goes in to kill Eric, he he fires multiple shots Mm -hmm. into the father again. And I think also into the little girl and the mom. So he wants to make sure they're good and dead. Yeah. So like I said, I'm going to set aside the 911 criticism. Um, That part of the story hurts my soul in a deeper way than I can explain that this little boy made this call and and maybe he thought Paul wasn't coming back but but when he saw him come back or heard him fire on his father again he knew it was coming I mean that one makes me like y'all that one makes me like I don't even have the words for it this little boy hurts my soul look there's no you can't armchair quarterback this sort of thing right because i'm telling you that people do i mean if you read all these articles i know people they do. are yeah i, they I mean do. but this is a unique situation and also when children are involved you know you don't know what their level of fear is anyone right like logic may tell you you should just run into the forest but you know, when your whole family gets slaughtered in front of you and you're like 11 years old, I don't know that logic plays into it. Like some people, it's kind of like the Uvalde thing, right? Some people reacted to it by playing dead. Some of the kids reacted to it by speaking up. You know, you just don't know how you're going to react in the situation. Like some people were critical of, of the teachers. And it's like, again, as a teacher in that situation, you don't know what the best thing to do is. You also don't know what little Eric was describing. So he could have just been hysterical, like right. literally hysterical. And the operator could have been saying, give me your name, give me your name, calm down, calm down. Where do you live? And that's all he could get out was screaming and crying. So you, right. we, like you said, I mean, Monday morning quarterbacking. And I get why that's important. We need to think about best practices for 911 operators. But I just want to say that we don't necessarily know what she was told or he what they believed what eric was able to get across we just don't know but paul was determined that this family was going to all die right so the first responders get there and they can tell one thing and that is amazing they can see on the porch that little jody is still alive he has not been successful in killing her but they don't know where he is So they make a perimeter and they can't get to her right away. Paul, believing that he had slaughtered the people who lived next door, he went back to his home and kills himself. So when they do finally get Jody, she does live long enough to be in the hospital for her sister to find out about this because the sister, Nicole, they call her Nikki, her friend heard it on a police scam and her friend informed her your sister's in the hospital. She goes to the hospital. They're able to say goodbye. Jody dies. And that's when Nikki finds out that her entire family has been murdered. And interestingly enough, in the documentary, Paul's family, his son and daughter-in-law do speak, but they prefer to be blacked out. So you can't see their faces. And I think it's sad that they have to feel that way because I don't think they didn't it, do it they didn't do anything yeah oh. but now they can't live in that community do you know what i mean it's, it's yeah. crazy yeah that's one of the things that is fascinating to me about you know the families of crime victims and perpetrators that oftentimes they will they can connect because they're both experienced tragic horrific thing you know whether or not your son or daughter did the crime or was the victim of the crime you know yeah but nicole does appear on that show and says that she has forgiven Paul, right? Yeah, and, and she says that they that his family has nothing to do with it, so she doesn't have any issues with them. So I thought that was nice of her to say that. So that show came out, that episode, I believe, came out 20 years after the murder, which would have been 2015 or 2016. 
And this has a really sad ending too because Nicole is no longer with us. Nicole oh, in 2020, yeah, Nicole had a motorcycle accident that resulted in her death. I know, uh-huh. I know. So, how old was she? 40 something. Um, and so she appears in the show and does appear like she had kind of tried to move her life forward, right? She apparently had done so. She had moved into that home later on in her life, which I find amazing and was a productive member of society and had friends and people around her and got married and then this in 2020 um so nobody who's ever heard about somebody dying on a motorcycle ever stops getting on a motorcycle if you were going to get on a motorcycle you were going to get on a motorcycle but please please don't get on a motorcycle i was in the hospital in london christmas eve all night i was in an er was bleeding to death from a surgery and I didn't bleed to death obviously but I almost bled to death because motorcycle wreck after motorcycle wreck coming in and two of them were dead on arrival and one of them lost his leg just saying y'all please just stop it just stop it so one of the things that I was reading in this website called true crime discussions blog it's really interesting person has websites to go to and has all of these old newspaper articles And one of the newspaper articles was from the Victoria Advocate. Mm -hmm. And I just got this neighbor who was quoted in here. Rita Hiddle, his husband found the bodies in the yard. She says they were easy neighbors and good kids. We knew there was a dispute, but we had no idea it was this bad. I mean, think about it. You know, you never think that this is going to turn into something like an entire family will get murdered. Maybe you think the old guy is going to hit the younger guy you know maybe they're gonna have words maybe they're gonna physically fight it out but the idea of somebody just taking a gun and laying waste to an entire family is so outside of i don't know it's just one of the worst things i've ever heard there's a couple killing the husband right i get kill the husband he's the one you think doing it all anyway it's a terrible thing but the entire fucking family dude well not only that he planned to kill himself too so you got to think about this guy's mentality he decided he was going to kill himself but no fucking way are they going to get access to the stock. <laughs> oh my God. Right? That's Seriously. Good. So he's like, before I kill myself, I'm going to kill them. I mean, bizarre. This, yes, it's so bizarre. One of the things that happens on the fear of thy neighbor is oftentimes it is because of a dispute or property lines that violence occurs. If people get so entrenched in that line cannot be crossed that they put their identity onto that line and that if you cross that line that means you're coming at me what are we really talking about here you could have made some level of both families could have made some level of agreement and give me you know an easement i'll pay you to rent the land part of the year you know what i'm saying yes so there were other options available to them but once both parties are, and I use this phrase, in the ring. When two people are in the ring battling it out, one person is not going to come out alive or is not going to come out intact because they're going to fight it until death. And it can be they're going to fight it until you lose your job. We're going to fight in the ring until I get you to go out with me or I get you to whatever. But when you're in the ring, you're both involved until death metaphorically or physically speaking i am never one to victim blame i am one to say we need to look and see what other options might have turned this interaction and situation and sent it down a different path into a different outcome and i'm not going to give warren a full pass on his involvement with this escalation of the dispute because i believe warren was in the ring i think warren jumped in that ring with Paul, just like he did with his neighbors, where he was like, I'm going to do my hunting, no matter if you want me to or not. And he did it with Paul, and he wasn't going to get out of that ring. What options would have been available to Warren other than that? I don't know. But maybe not escalating it is probably not the way to go. Just like I didn't want to turn on... my. I had my friend suggest I put dye in a water sprinkler and aim it at her car. Now, do you think that that would have escalated or de-escalated? You know, yeah. but you have to think of, this is the part where I don't give advice and then I give advice and tell you not to listen to the advice. 
is you have to think about what you want. What's the outcome you want at the very, very end? And if you want them to leave you alone, escalation is not the way to go. And that goes for tiny little interactions as well as big, giant disputes like this. Yeah. So think about your house, right? You are not a wealthy person. You're a medium income person and you buy a house and your neighbor is in some way violating the sanctity of your home. There's lots of ways that people can do it. Parking in front of your house constantly, getting in your backyard and taking your lemons, whatever. Shining a spotlight into your bedroom. Yeah, there's tons of ways that people can violate the sanctity of your home. And if you can't get them to stop, it's a very helpless, anxiety-producing nightmare. Likely you've bought this place and you can't just move. But also you don't want to be bullied, right? So when it comes to a property dispute, if you're in the right and the person has just been ganking your property and in order to not have a violent dispute with them, you have to be bullied into giving it up. You know, James's grandmother and grandfather were living in this house that James's dad bought for them. And the neighbor was slowly moving her stuff to encroach on their property. They didn't have a fence dividing, right? And so they were going to put up a fence and they let her know, you're encroaching on our property. And she flew into a rage and was just a psycho. And so their next response was to stop engaging with her, get an attorney and send her a cease and desist and then file a lawsuit. Now, they were never good neighbors after that, (laughs) but... (laughs) You think? Yeah. The thing is, there are people that are just bullies, but there's also people that don't understand the situation that they're in and are too rigid. You don't have a right to not hear me ever walk on my floor. That's not reasonable. And I think that this situation had to be resolved in the court Or like you had said, a compromise. But I don't think Paul was willing to make a compromise. No, I don't think. I think Paul was gaining some pleasure from controlling the situation and denying Warren something. You get more invested in winning the fight than you do in your own peace of mind. And when you've crossed that line, there's not a lot of options available to you. And it can turn into something really, really ugly. And that's why that show exists, Fear Thy Neighbors. I think I've watched more than half of the seasons, but I'm behind. It's also one of the few shows that reenactments don't really bother me. They're not, usually reenactments are so corny and cheesy and the acting is really bad. But this one I think is actually not too bad with the reenactments. When the stories are so compelling of how quickly friendships can just just switch when you have some sort of a disagreement with a neighbor. It's just, I mean, it's crazy. I had one neighbor when we moved to the high rise in Dallas that we met them before we moved in, but we were invited to the HOA before we actually moved because we had to remodel. This one couple just really took a liking to me and Curtis. And we're like, oh my God, we're going to be such good friends. So once we moved in, we invited them over for a glass of wine and some cheese. And it was adorable. And they never spoke to us again. Like literally never again. They would see us in the elevator and glare at us. Wow. I swear to God. And I have absolutely no idea what happened. They never spoke to us again. And if we would see them anywhere around the neighborhood or anything, they would just glare out of the corner of their eye it was so fucking weird and so first of all you don't know what motivates people i mean things can turn on a dime but it's one thing if you have a disagreement with someone and they live way far away or they live in another neighborhood but man if it's your neighbor what are you gonna do a lot of people are upside down on their house or they can't afford to move literally and then you're just stuck which is what happens when people on fear thy neighbor they feel helpless they feel attacked and they can't leave and then they just start acting out and then things escalate and then everyone in the situation is committed to winning there's not going to be a good outcome when everyone's committed to winning because not everybody can get what they want and i have a personal don't shit where you eat policy when it comes to where you live i do have lovely neighbors that i like a lot but i don't accept invitations to go out to eat or hang out because for that very reason make sure when you open that can of worms And actually, Warren and Paul struck up a friendship in the beginning over their love of hunting and farming and stuff like that. So clearly, there's something deeper here that none of us will ever know because all the parties were killed. But I have to believe that even his, like, discovery of the line and all that was some motivation for him. And I think about your lady that would park in front of your house. It's like, 
how bored, how much of no life do you have that you're going to set an alarm every day to go fuck with somebody? That you're that committed to their misery that you are making yourself miserable. That's how committed you are to their misery. It's remarkable. Because, frankly, don't you want to just live in peace? Don't you want to just get along with people rather than every time you leave your house have to look side to side and just scurry to your car? Who wants that? But you know what? Some people do. Some people love the battle and they thrive and not just drama, you know, but like chaos. Like they, they love it and they feed off of it. And Lord help y'all if y'all ever get a neighbor like that, because it is miserable. And it's a very helpless feeling. It triggers my injustice. And that's one of my things that I absolutely can't stand is injustice and entitlement. And, and in fact, about six months before we moved, we actually got to be friends with a couple who was across the street and three doors down invited us over for wine and cheese it was adorable and they were like kind of tiptoeing around like basically don't tell the neighbors that you came over because we're not supposed to be friends with you and i was like six and a half years what a bully six and a half years of our neighbors not speaking to us and we're finding out that it was a deliberate campaign to prevent like he knew these this this couple they both knew that if they got found out they would be ostracized can you imagine being that committed to somebody else's misery psycho i mean we did not build the fence i was trying to think what i was watching where oh it was hacks i don't know if you've been watching hacks oh my god i love that show it reminds me of you yeah (laughs) not deborah vance but the but the the girl whatever her name is she reminds me of you (laughs) that's funny i can see that but deborah vance wants her neighbor to get rid of a tree house because it's blocking her view of the ocean and then she goes over there with a chainsaw so i get a chainsaw I think it's about everybody being conscientious, but you can't always count on that. Yeah. Yeah. I had another story I was going to share. This is probably going to be enough to wrap up the show here in a minute. There's a guy, Everett Mason, and I'm going to put this link of his story on our site, who's currently dealing with a neighbor who went on a three-month harassment campaign, and her neighbors got restraining orders filed against her. And finally, she was arrested after threatening him, calling him the N-word, and telling him that he needs to have a rope around his neck and all these things, swastikas painted everywhere. And obviously you're dealing with a mentally disturbed person, but that doesn't mean she ain't going to fucking kill you because when the police finally went in her apartment, homegirl did have a firearm in the LA Times in this article by uh, Noah Goldberg in the LA Times. He did say, I believed each day when I got out of my car because she was on the first floor that today might be the day she shoots me dead. This woman is insane and got arrested and I think she's still in jail but finally, he had to go on this like publicity thing to get anybody to pay attention because the police kept saying, oh, it was a dispute between neighbors. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. She literally attacked him, physically threatened him, you know, hate crime, all the things. And it took them forever to finally do something about it in Long Beach. Literally, he calls 911 when he's trying to get her to leave him alone. And the 911 operator says, it sounds like you're harassing her. And he says, well, welcome to being black in America. Because he's the black man, she's a white woman. And the videos that he makes of her are absolutely terrifying and horrible. Trigger alert. Some of them, if you find them out there, are not, they don't block out the N-word or the S-word or all the things she said. So just terrible. But but I'm telling you, my point is, he didn't escalate it. Everett did the right thing. And his neighbors did the right thing by going to the courts, trying to get the attorney and law to deal with her, rather than trying to escalate it and engage and engage and engage and engage. Right. And it can't go without saying, because some neighbors here in our complex had a dispute, and the neighbors started sending legal notices, right? And the board went to the neighbor and said, well, have Mm -hmm. you talked to this person? No. I haven't talked to them. I can't talk to them. You know, it's like, well, wait a second. Maybe this person doesn't know that they're being too noisy. Maybe they don't know the volume is bothersome. Why don't you invite them down to your condo? Let them hear what it sounds like in your condo. Do you know what I'm saying? And then if they don't- They led with law. They led with attorney. They led with law. It's like instant, instant instigation. Yep. I understand it's really hard to confront people. It's really hard to have that face-to-face confrontation. I don't like it. Sometimes I let a hotel charge me for something I didn't do or whatever, because I don't want to have that confrontation. But this is your home, and you have to at least give someone a chance to explain and understand how they're affecting you. 
I mean, just as an example, our condo has quiet hours between 10 and whatever. I totally understand if you yeah. have a party every now and then, let me know and I'll, I'll be prepared for it. But it's not reasonable to party every night from eight to five in the morning, you know. But once the board talked to this person, suddenly they stopped having the parties. Every now and then they have a flare yep. up, but that's going to happen, right? But, you know, if you research disputes between neighbors, I mean, it's not uncommon for somebody to just go shoot somebody over a noise complaint. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What we or forget dog barking or whatever. Yeah. We forget human nature because even go back to the early 1900s, 1800s. And how do you think land disputes were solved? Exactly how Paul solved his land dispute. So yes. this is human nature. When your property is challenged, it's something yes. you're going to have to fight. Like against. I said, people attach property to their very identity. And when that gets trampled on, they can treat it as if you are physically raping them. You know, it's, it's like that property is an extension of their personal life. And it's a life and death feeling to some people. Like some people, that's their mentality. But so um, I was going to say this LA Times article from Noah Goldberg. Um, it's really good about Everett Mason. And it starts with the sentence that every day when he came home to his apartment in Long Beach, he'd say a little prayer that I hope this isn't the day that she decides to shoot me through her window because I'm a sitting target right outside her window. And so this made me say, okay, Laureen May Lake, this is a racist woman. And when you watch those videos, you're going to just, your jaw is going to hit the floor. And she would like open her window at 3 a.m. and just start screaming to wake up her neighbors. I mean, I mean, come on. Um, but the compilation and the videos and stuff that Everett put online, it's incredible what you'll see. And one of the things he put online was a video on Instagram of her having, of the neighbor, the racist, having painted a swastika. Well, then it got removed by Instagram because it was an offensive post because it had a picture of a swastika. And he's like, that's the fucking point. Is, is she put the thing on my property to make sure I'm feeling threatened and then Instagram wouldn't even let him, you know. Because mm -hmm. he ended up feeling so helpless that the police weren't doing anything because these were physical threats. You know, right. I mean, when somebody paints swastikas and calls your names and tells you that you need a noose around your neck, this is a physical danger to you. But as far as I can tell, he did not escalate it, which who knows what kind of violence might have ensued had he escalated it like like other people do and end up on fear of thy neighbor, you know? Yeah. Um, it's but, hard. It's hard not to escalate it. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of work maybe you need to go to some therapy for it you know <laughs> but you can't attach your identity to being right in this thing and getting an outcome because you can't control crazy and you can't argue crazy you cannot talk crazy off the ledge and you will make yourself crazy trying to argue crazy well, your crazy neighbor will stay crazy so i did look up a couple of sites this one here is called baseline equipment Apparently, all of the companies that do construction work, they deal with this all the time. They do advise before taking legal action, many land disputes can be resolved through open discussion. It is best to approach your neighbors without mentioning an attorney. Some people may not realize they are encroaching and may be amenable to finding an agreement without getting the courts involved. Can you send me that site? I'll put on our website, fearthispodcast.com, because yes. that's important. I mean, the thing is, that we need to think rationally first instead of diving into well you're fucking with my quality of life and i'm not going to change but what if your quality of life for your family had, would have been more peaceful if you had figured out another solution other than just that dock i'm not saying i know the answer i'm saying we could have had a different outcome other than four human beings murdered just their lives taken away and this 16 year old girl ending up an orphan Right. Because of this dispute over a fucking dock, you know? Maybe there is some practical advice here that ties this all together. Perhaps if you live next door to a psychopath that's making your life miserable. Just Offer them a gin and tonic? Maybe a gift basket, a little gin and tonic <laughs> gift basket with some some bitter chocolate and uh, you know some coffee and um some overly peppers or whatever the fuck coffee. you're eating. <laughs> Now you know how to make a psychopath's gift basket. Psychopath.
Psychopath gift basket. Okay, we're gonna start selling those on our website. Should we sell psychopath yes. gift baskets? Gin and tonic, dark chocolate, Starbucks coffee, but you can't add any creamer to it. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean this is Little like Bombay. <laughs> <laughs> this holiday, be sure and get the psychopath in your life a gift. I'm gonna make a commercial for that. I'm gonna make another trailer, and it's gonna be a psychopath gift basket. And it's gonna it's gonna either escalate things or they're gonna start drinking gin and tonics and be too tired to come over and murder you. That's gonna be exactly what happens. Well, I think that rather than being bitter towards you, they can get their bitterness from the basket. Oh, yeah. See, we solved it, y'all. Don't don't do violence. So... Drink a gin and tonic. <laughs> but then if somebody next door gives you a gin and tonic gift basket, aren't you supposed to realize that they think you're a fucking psychopath? Is that well, our passive-aggressive way of telling people that you're a psychopath? I don't know. Just depends on whether or not they've read this article or listened to our episode, you know? Yeah. yeah. The psychopathic gift basket. All right. You ready to wrap this up? Yes. Scary-ass neighbors. Um, I will actually do a little bit more research on, because this is an ongoing story, with the Long Beach psychotic rapist. rapist. <laughs> I don't know if she's a rapist or not. Psychotic <laughs> racist? <laughs> racist, rapist, whatever. Lorraine May Lake, that name is upsetting me as well. The Long Beach rapist racist. Uh, I'll keep you all posted on that story if things happen. I don't even know if she's out of jail yet. This just happened a few days ago that she was actually finally arrested and thrown in the clank. Is it clanker or clank? I don't know. I don't use Okay. That I don't know jail lingo. I'm not cool enough. So thanks for listening. I hope that you got something out of it, but not too much. And don't agitate your neighbors. Yep. Um, follow us and on the Instagram and go to our website, fearthispodcast.com, for life changing content. Yeah, and be sure to head to our website to get one of those psychopath gift baskets for the psychopath in your life. <laughs>